Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 through 33, verse 11. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children. He said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of the Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, we are starting a, uh, we're in the second week of a series called Side by Side on Relationships. And uh, first week we talked about friendship. Um, highly recommend you check it out. Uh, there's a lot of people who found it helpful at least. Um, but today we're talking about how to conflict as a family. Uh, you know, usually uh, as a pastor, the typical thing to start off on a sermon is to tell you, banter around something funny, um, say something you really get your attention and want you to like me and begin to get your attention so you get your mind off everything else and focus. Um, but I don't want to do that today. I actually want to start off with something quite awkward, which is confession. This past week... Um, just this morning, um, I instigated a fight with my wife before church. It sounds funny, but it's serious. <laughs> that I started this fight, um, poking and prodding and initiating it, 
and it wasn't pretty. Um, later on this week, I, I was trying to get my preschool son buckled in the seat, and I'm like talking to him very aggressively, and I see somebody from church that I know, and all of a sudden, my aggressiveness turns into a quick smile of like, how I'm doing great. And it was very scary at how quick for me that I could switch that to that that quickly. Um, this, the week before, um, I talked to my wife in a way that was very aggressive, um, escalated my voice, and if you saw it, you would not want to hear anything that I have to say today or see myself as worthy of everything I have to say today. And as I say all that, you're, some of you are probably wondering, is our pastor having a nervous breakdown? No. <laughs> I, I, I say that because it's very important for us to level out the playing field of this idea that pastors and people in the congregation are different. Um, the church is a community of sinners in which one of those people is called to be a pastor, and they're all sinners. And it's very important for you to know who I actually am, not who I want you to think that I am. It's very important. And the only way for us to do that as a community is to be people who confess. That we are more, because God's power is made perfect in weakness. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And... It's more important for us to brag about our shortcomings as Christians than it is to brag about how successful we think we are. And so now that I've gotten this awkward part of the, out of the way, I want to continue to talk about how to conflict as a family. Because this is something that we all face. Conflict is inevitable. This is something that we all face and challenge and hit. And um, as I do this, uh, talking about conflict can bring up a lot of fears, bring, bring up a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety, a lot of past. And so let me just pray for us real quick before we dive in. Um, God, I pray that you would um, do something powerful today in our hearts. God, I pray that you um, would do a miracle in our lives. I ask in faith that you would break through with healing. And I pray that you would um, meet us where we are. I pray that, God, you, your spirit would do something and speak so loudly today that we would not help but step out in faith today, that we would step out in faith and trust to do the unthinkable and what we think might be the impossible, and that we would be a reconciling community. So, God, I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, I want to talk about first, like, the need for why we, why we need to talk about conflict. Um, I think that's pretty clear. I think we all kind of know that we need to talk about it, uh, but it's something we don't talk about very often. Um, if you think about the violence in our city, every violent act, every shooting between a teenager, all starts with a grudge boiled over. Most shootings in our city happen because one person talked to their girlfriend the wrong way, or that they didn't. And so we look at that and balk, but the reality is, is we all of us have grudges that boil over. Um, and so for us, the biggest need we have for having a community that is about relationship repair, that create a culture at Missio Day that we are about repairing relationships, and that we hold each other accountable to repairing relationships, that we don't allow one another to say something behind someone else's back negative without saying, you should maybe go talk to that person, that we create that kind of culture here at Missio Day. Uh, that the, the reason is the church is a reconciling force in society. 
That's the way God designed the church. God designed the church that every person from every culture, every demographic could be a part of this community and we could be a reconciling force. But uh, Barna did some research several years ago and the top four things that society said that the church is were these. Number one, the very first thing is they said the church is anti-gay. And the reality is, is God is not anti-anyone. God is a God who loves all, who is made all in the image of God. That's the number one thing that the world thinks of. So how are we doing, church? Reconciling community. Second, judgment. That's the second thing on the list. They're judgmental. That the church is a judgmental community. That's the, the second thing. So, so we are not, the, the thing that's keeping us from living into the reconciling force is actually us. Like we are the, the issue. The third thing is hypocritical. You know, that, that, uh, in, the, in the Bible, there was a couple who lied about how much they gave to the church and they, they passed out and died afterwards. Welcome to church. Crazy stuff in the Bible. That's a whole other sermon. Um, and then the fourth thing, which I kind of actually like, is old-fashioned. Because I think old-fashioned is kind of making a comeback. <laughs> so the fourth thing is that they said we're, we're old-fashioned. So um, we, though, as a community, are meant to be this reconciling force. That's the reason why we need, first and foremost, to talk about relationship repair, is because if we can't reconcile relationships within the church, how are we going to be a reconciling community outside the church? If we can't learn to do this in here, how are we ever going to do it out there? Um, second is we carry our family of origins into our relationships. Many of us came to Chicago and thought, you know what? I'm going to go to the place, the place that my family would least likely visit so I can get away from them. And sorry for misspell of, that's supposed to be origin, not origin. Um, uh, but we, we, I'm going to go to the place that would be the least likely place my family visit because I want to run from them and get away from my family as much as possible. But what we failed to realize is you actually carried your family with you here. Your family is in your bones. Your family of origin is with you. You carry your family of origin with you into relationships. You can't outrun your family of origin. Um, how many of you think you were, were, were mentored by your family on how to do conflict? All right. Some of you... Like three hands. The reality is, is every single one of us was mentored by our family on how to do conflict. I didn't say mentored to do it well. <laughs> but you were mentored and taught whether you saw it modeled well or didn't see it modeled, whether your family just avoided conflict or aggressively talked over one another and escalated and were verbally abusive to one another. You saw how to respond and now, almost in you are these re responses that are almost re like just automatic that you can't control. And you know what I mean? You get in a conflict and you're just like, it just comes out of you. And you're like, where did that come from? It's because your family of origin is brought into your relationships. Um, and we almost have this like out-of-body experience when we're in the middle of a conflict. That just things come out that we never thought were there. And we see ourselves doing that. Like, why do I go silent? Why do, I get, why do I escalate? Why do I get aggressive? So when our family of origins is driving the car in our relationships, when your inner child is driving the car, suddenly experience in our relationship our perspective only. It's now all about our perspective. We lose empathy for the other person. We lose accurate perspective or reality. 
We project onto the other person our old family patterns, and the result is we feel alone, we feel misunderstood, and indeed the person is just like the person who hurt us in the first place. So we, we must remember that we carry our family of origins into relationships. We're going to get into that. Actually, I want to talk about four real quick. Um, Today is going to be, uh, I'm going to attempt to do something that everyone says not to do, but I'm just going to try it, which is to mix teaching and preaching, okay? Um, I like to preach usually in here, but I'm going to do, oh, we got some claps for teaching. Uh, I do want to give you some tools today, all right? But I do want to preach at the same time. Is that cool? Can I try it? You can forgive me later. Just confront me later. Let's do some conflict. Um, I want to give you a couple of tools. First of all, your family of origin in us, we all have uh, what John Gottman, who's the, who, who talks about the Ford horsemen. More claps for, for Gottman. Um, and we, and the, has anybody heard of the four deadly horsemen before? All right, so four deadly horsemen apocalypse comes from Revelation. It's because this is the end of days of your relationship if these four things are happening as patterns. Uh, so I want to go over them. There's something that we all do, so you're not meant to leave here being like, oh my gosh, I'm horrible. We're all going to do them, and you are all going to continue to do them but you have some that you lean on more than others. So these are the things that continue to destroy our attempts to repair relationships. The first is contempt. Contempt is insulting or name-calling. Um, it is a sense of shaming or mocking. Um, it's that sense of like, well, you did it this way. No, no, no. This is what you sound like. It's that kind of mocking thing when you get in a fight and you begin to caricature them. Um, it's any attempt to belittle the other person. It is. It, it, it's also, uh, I know we love sarcasm in our culture, but hostile humor, making others laugh at your expense, um, it, the root of it is an attempt to control the other person. It's an attempt to control the other person and make them feel bad because maybe that will make them change. Um, you know, we say things like, don't act like a baby. What's wrong with you? You know, these kind of things. That's contempt. I'm going to go through a lot of this super fast, but I'm going to give you resources later. If you want to dive into any of this later, just email me. Um, this comes with an air of superiority. It is sulfuric acid on a relationship. Every relationship needs to feel, every person has the God-given right to feel respected. And when we give disrespect to the other person, it is a sulfuric acid in the relationship. Second is criticism. Criticism is... Um, you know this when the complaining starts to pick up steam? <laughs> You're like, it's not just one thing, but it's like in this, it starts to feel like a fast-moving train if the other person's doing this to you. It just starts to get piled on, and you, 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 and it always begins with you. And so basically, criticism is, well, you, you, it usually has these, um, remember the acronym MOANS. So if you want to take notes, try your best so I can send these with you. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in here to take notes on. Um, MOANS is um, must, ought, always, never, should. These are the words that we, we must not use in conflict. When we use the words, you always do this, or you never take out the trash. You, 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 these are words that are triggering words that are begin to caricature the person, criticize the person, and, and just explosive for a fight. So um, criticism begins with you. Thirdly is defensiveness. Defis defensiveness is toxic because we are not taking responsibility for our part of the problem. Um, we, we, we basically, when we are defensive, we interrupt, we gaslight. Someone brings up a something that they think is wrong, and we turn it back on them to the seven things that are wrong with them. Well, you know, and, and so we, we spin it. We interrupt, we formulate our defense, we cut people off. 
Um, we bring stuff up from the past and we hijack the conversation and turn it to make it about us. Um, that's defensiveness. Does that make sense? So um, it, it's usually yes, but it's fixated on the need to be right because you can't deal with, with being, not being perfect or not being successful or not being liked. And so you're constantly blaming external circumstances beyond your control when you're in defensive mode. Um, these, are, these are the first three. And then the last one is stonewalling. Does anybody know what stonewalling is? It's like this. Yeah, that's stonewalling. Yeah, sure. Um, stonewalling is this appearance that you're listening, but you're really not. It's, uh, it comes from this root issue, though, of like you're just, oh, your senses are so overwhelmed, you don't know how to deal with the conflict, and we give... We, we give silent treatment. Now, there's a difference between giving a sense of silence for boundaries that we should respect. Hey, I need an hour. Can we talk about this in an hour? I need an hour to process this. That's healthy. Silent treatment and stonewalling is basically the enemy giving you a broom and saying, hey, you should sweep this under the rug. Um, because we, we, we push down, we keep it under the rug, and God doesn't work that way. God loves specificity. <laughs> That we can be specific with what's bothering us and what we want in relationships and what we need. And this is the power of naming. That God wants us to have the power of naming. Most of the time, stonewalling is more common with men than women, statistically. Uh, it's trying not to make things worse, but it is a shutting down when feeling overwhelmed. Um, but God loves it when we name the things that are pain, right? The Holy Spirit wants us to deal with it. Today, there's something happening with you right now, and he wants you to name what it is. Some of you, God's putting it on your mind right now. There's a conflict, there's a relationship, maybe two or three that you're identifying, and God's like, I want you to name that, and I want you to name and address the elephant in the room. What's the elephant in the room of your gospel community? What's the elephant in the room of your workplace? What's the elephant in the room in your marriage? Um, God wants you to name that, to name it and, and the enemy loves vagueness. The enemy loves working with vagueness. So the more we can name, the more powerful God can work. And the goal of conflict is not to have, we're all going to have conflict. The goal of conflict is not to avoid conflict. The goal of being a, it's the difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker actually sometimes enters into conflict to disrupt false peace. Jesus said that, but then later he went into the temple with whips and said, drove out the, the money changers of the temple and said, this is a house of prayer. Was Jesus like in the Holy Spirit mode when he wrote the, blessed are the peacemakers? And then all of a sudden now he's angry? No, he was in the spirit the whole time. And so we see that sometimes being a peacemaker is about disrupting false peace. And so conflict is very important. The deal is, is how, what is the particular way the family of God is supposed to do conflict? There's a particular approach that the family of God is supposed to do conflict. That's what we're getting in today. So, so that's the, the second thing, basically family of origin. Third thing of why we need this is, the reality is it's a heart issue, that bitterness and the default mode of our hearts. Bitterness is the default mode of our hearts when we avoid, because we often we don't have the tools to enter into conflict, so we never do it, and the bitterness gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Matthew 5, verse 23. Is this helping anybody? You guys okay? Hanging in there? 
All right, it's gonna, we're going to keep going. Um, Matthew 5, 23. Jesus said, therefore, if, uh, verse off, 21, actually. It says this in Matthew 5, 21. Believe, there we go. If you have heard that it was said of the olds, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I don't know what all Jesus meant by that, but it sounds serious. That when we are angry with people in our hearts, that there is something that is a huge block in our relationship with God. That that all murder and violence is, is the grudges boiling over. So we all have to deal with this stuff. The next verse, he says this, Matthew 5, 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Them come and offer your gift. In other words, if you think someone has some offense against you, you should go ask them, Do you, are you offended with me? Did I, I sense something here? What is going, is, am I right before you even worship? Not that you have something against your brother, but someone has like something against you that you should initiate and be reconciled. But when we don't, when we avoid this, these conversations, bitterness seeps in. And you know bitterness is seeping in. There's a couple of signs. Um, it's kind of like, the best way I know how to put it is when you roll your eyes at someone in your heart. <laughs> That's the best way I know how to, how to describe it. That's where it starts, that you kind of roll your eyes at someone. You have negative thoughts about that person, and you see everything. They, they can say something, and someone else can say the same thing, but when they said it, it's horrible, right? That's when this starts happening. Um, then the snowball effect is there's the awkwardness in the relationship, and then it's really snowballing when you have the need to pass on negative information about that person to others. And then it gets to the point where there's just no conversation at all between the two of you. And it's absolutely crucial that we repair these relationships. In prepping for this sermon, I came across something I didn't know existed called spite houses. Has anybody heard of a spite house? In Chicago, literally, true story, a millionaire had a piece of land between two developments. And there was a section of land between these two buildings that wasn't big enough to really build on, so he tried to sell it to his neighbor to, and said, hey, I want to increase your footprint. I really don't want this land, and I can't build on it, so I'll sell it to you for a discounted price. Take one, you, here's the deal. And the neighbor said, look, I know you can't do anything with it, so I'll take one-tenth of what it's worth. The millionaire got so angry and said, this is ridiculous. How dare you insult me with this? What do you, who do you think I am? So he goes to the next neighbor and says, hey, do you want this land? And he says, no, I already know what you said to the first offer, so I'll, I'll do this. I'll offer one even lower. So the guy gets so angry, he builds a five-foot house the entire length of the property and lives in the house until he dies. You can't see. And this is called a spite house. This is a picture of a spite house in Seattle. You can't really see it because of the light, but you see this little building here. A husband and wife get a divorce. The husband, the, the the husband gets the house and the wife gets the land. She builds a spite house in the front of the land. Says, this is where I'm living. Spite house. Next slide. There's spite walls. This is literally was in Wicker Park. Got torn down in 2015. In the middle of Wicker Park, an 1880s era Wicker Park graystone, 
the guy built a wall so he wouldn't see his neighbor. And this, this was, went on from 1880 to 2015. And then finally a new owner moved in and ripped it down. Now, I think so many of us, we carry around a spirit of offense. That we carry around the spirit of offense and we are literally, our heart is becoming a spite house. A spite house in which we put in our spirit spite for other people. And this happens to all of us. And it feels good at the moment, but it really does a lot of danger. You can inhabit a posture of spite and all it is doing is disrupting biblical community and disrupting your life and hurting you. And this is why it's so bad. Here's the dangers. I want to go through Scripture, just a few dangers of this bitterness that creeps into our heart. First of all, it foils our intimacy with God. Bitterness foils our intimacy with God. Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, so it's pretty a big deal. In the Lord's Prayer, when he adds this on the very end of it, he's teaching his disciples how to pray, and it's very hard to dismiss when it's in the Lord's Prayer. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, that's a big deal. I think it's the snare that, this, that Satan does when we don't release people of our debts. It creates an opportunity, opportunity for the devil to say, God has to resist your plans and efforts and because you're not releasing people of their sins. I want you... Your father will not forgive you because you did not forgive your sins. Now, this gives us a theological conundrum. Because, right, we're like substitutionary atonement. Jesus died for all my sins. What are you talking about? God won't forgive my sins. That's heresy. Jesus said it, and he meant something by it. I don't know how to explain and rationalize that with the fact that we can't lose our salvation, and he's paid for every sin, and we're sinful. But what Jesus meant was something about your relationship with God is deeply connected with our ability to release other people of their wrong. And that's a big deal. Jesus meant something by this. Second, it hinders our prayer life. Mark 11, verse 22 says this, Have faith in God. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, if anyone says this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, that's where we usually stop. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So there's a certain kind of prayer that's being happening here. We t we, this is very important for our church, that we often pray with expectancy, asking God for deep things to happen, for miracles, for the supernatural, for the Holy Spirit to move. We, where we say, God, move this mountain, but there's no release. And what Jesus is saying is maybe it's tied to the fact that there's bitterness in your spirit. These prayers that you're wanting God to do the miraculous through you, maybe the, one of the reasons why it's not happening is their bitterness in your spirit, Jesus says. That when you stand praying for these things, if you hold anything against them, forgive them so that your Father will forgive them. Thirdly, bitterness poisons a community. It poisons a community. Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. 
Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter, bitter roots grow up to cause trouble and defile many. So what does bitterness do? It causes trouble and it defiles. The word defile is the same word for dilute, I mean, uh, to, to pollute or to die. And I was just thinking about that imagery of polluting or dying, like literally like this image comes up of just like this dye dropping in in the midst of a community and just the pollution that it creates. And you can't, we can't compartmentalize this. It leaks out. And what's crazy is bitterness leads to us to accusation. And that's, the accusation job's already been taken. It's taken by Satan. That's his job. (laughs) We don't need to take on his job. We need to leave that to him and not be the accuser. Um, so what do we do? How do we, how, do we, how do we get into this? I want to give us some tools because one of the reasons we don't press in is we just don't have any tools. There's other reasons, but that's one of them. Um, so what, each one of these tools could be a whole other hour talk, and there's a whole other group of tools. So I'm going to try to go through these tools kind of quickly. Hope that something sticks, and hope that if it sticks, you'll do some more research or reach out for more books. If you want a book, there's a book called Difficult Conversations. It's a great resource. Um, write that down. A lot of what I'm about to say is from that book, cool? And then the rest is from the Bible, but that book is for this section. Um, so what are the tools? Because we have to create a particular way we're going to do conflict as a church family. Um, I want to give you a couple of tools. The first tool is a learning conversation versus message delivery, all right? A lot of times when we have conflict, important, uh, but not when we're doing conflict. You doing this, I'm this, you're, you're sending this message, you're always this. Learning conversation is curiosity. Hey, I noticed you didn't clean the dishes like four nights in a row. I'm like, just curious about that. Tell me more. <laughs> that's, that's a learning conversation, right? Oh, gosh, I was so stressed. Things at work have been horrible. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Like, I get that. I understand. That's a learning conversation. You never do the dishes. We've been married for 13 years. I keep telling you to do the dishes. No, I'm having to do them. Like, that's, that's, a, that's a message delivery, right? Um, uh, a learning conversation is curiosity. And if you're going to be curious, what do you have to do? You have to be present. You can't have your mind constantly with other distractions, what you want to say next, thinking about work, thinking about other things. You have to be fully present. Is this making sense? Um, other things. Tell me my favorite phrases as of lately. It, it, it's going to feel awkward at first because this is a new language that you're learning. So don't do this once and be like, that didn't work. It's going to take a long time and doesn't guarantee that it's not going to be conflicting. It's just you bringing your best to the relationship. You bringing all that the Spirit has put in you to the relationship. Tell me more. What else? Great, just learning conversation. Tell me more. What else? Um, I notice, and then this is a lot, one more that um, we failed to do, is just I need. I need, with the positive thing, I need your attention. I need, I need you to do the dishes. I need you to come, I need you to keep your word when, when you say you're going to come home. That's something I need right now. And instead, we just, we blame we need to replace blame with I need. Does that make sense? Um, and then this one's to me, probably the been most helpful lately, is you need to find the third story, right? You need to find the third story. Um, the first story is my perspective. The, the person, yeah, of course, first story, 
my perspective. No, uh, first story is one person's perspective, then the second person is the other person's perspective. Third story is where you both have the same goal. So um, I'll give you an example. Recently, um, my 10-year-old daughter wants a phone. She has been asking for a phone at nauseum because someone at where her best friends got a phone. And our mother, my mother-in-law, left us an iPhone 4, old school, big fat charger. You know what I'm talking about. Um, it's probably all dead, sitting in your closet somewhere. And she says, oh, I'm just going to leave this in case Naomi wants it. And, um, and so actually, I'm kind of like, you know, um, my first story is, to, to Ashley is, I think we should give it to her. It's small, it's simple, we should put parameters around it, it doesn't go up in a room. She needs to learn how to use it, Some society's going to teach her how to use it. We need to give her a phone, let her have it. I don't want her to continually hold this grudge that we never gave her a phone, all these things. It creates a lot of bad memories for her. I think we should just go ahead and give it to her, let her see how it goes. Second story, that was the first story. Second story is, no. Absolutely not. You can't turn it back. Once you give it, it just gets out of hand, goes all, all forward. You can't redo the decision. Then it's the next phone and the next phone and the next phone. She's too young. She's 10 years old. She doesn't need a phone. That's Ashley's perspective. All right? Uh, third story is this. Hey, you know, um, if I were to, if instead of me saying those things, the other thing, things I want, third story would be, hey, sweetie, you know, Naomi's clearly, like, feeling a little damaged that she doesn't have a phone. Um, I know that we both want to, like, raise her in a way that we feel like is just really mature and wise and, and loving, and we want to maintain a relationship. Um, I'm sure we got different perspectives. Like, could I, could I tell you my perspective? And then I'd really want to hear your perspective. Um, how does that sound? Right? There's a third story. This is something we both want, something we both need, and then starting with the third story. All right? So start with the third story. Your life will go better. All right? Um, those are, that's a learning conversation. So let me go through the next tools. Um, the next tool is reflecting and acknowledging. I'm going to go fast through this because I think most of you know this. This is very important, though. It's releasing the need to be right, releasing the need to be right, and reclaiming the need to understand. It's, it's re restating what you understand them saying without judgment. Totally key. Because you can... Restate, what I hear you saying is, blah, 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 did I get that right? Like, automatically, you know, that there's something going on there in the heart. But it's repeating and paraphrasing, not parroting, paraphrasing what you hear without judgment. And then lastly, acknowledgement is acknowledging the feeling that you hear. When you say that, it sounds like you're sad. Is that right? When you say that, it sounds like you're frustrated or it sounds like you're excited. Is that right? It's acknowledging the emotion that you're hearing, even if they don't state it and saying it and asking if that's right. Um, so oftentimes what we do is we just say, I understand, I understand, I understand. And the person just keeps repeating themselves, and you're like, I told you I understand, because they don't feel understood, right? So if this is happening, this is your cue, this is your mark. All right, third tool. Uh, I'll get through these quick. Owning instead of blaming. blaming. Um, we've got to own our part, and often in conflict, 90% of it seems like it's their fault, and 10% seems like it's our fault. So what's your 10% that you can own and own it? Um, it encourages transparency. It gets away from spinning. But we live in a blame culture. But contribution culture or owning culture says we're all in this together. Nobody's perfect. Let's put on the table everything we've done so we can learn and do this better. That's contribution. I think you guys all intuitively get that. These are all easier said than done. And lastly is, this one's critical, separating intention from impact. 
separating intention from impact. The person who is offended is an expert on the impact, right? They know how it made them feel. The person who did the offending is an expert on the intention. But the offended often starts with, you are horrible. You don't care about me. You did that in spite of me. You didn't even think of me. And the other person's like, whoa, 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 you don't know what's in my heart. You don't know. That's not what I was trying to say or what I was trying to do. And so often, the best analogy for this is like, I threw a cotton ball, but it felt like a rock, right? Um, what I really did was I threw a cotton ball, but it felt like a rock. So we need to, when we were the offended, we need to separate intention from impact. We need to not think that we know the intention. We need to seek to understand the intention. Does that make sense? And then the last one, uh, another good example of separate intention from impact is road rage, right? Someone cuts you off, you're like, what a jerk. Gosh, what are they thinking? And then your exit comes up, and then someone's like honking at you, like, get off the road, dude. You're like, what is he thinking? What's wrong with him? I didn't do anything. It's like you do the exact same thing, but intention, impact. Does that make sense? All right, and then the last one. You guys hanging in there? You guys all feeling like you're just horrible right now? I do. Um, These are all hard to do. There's good news at the end. The last tool is the most important. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. No issue that goes to the heart or slices more deeply than when we start talking about forgiveness. We need to forgive. Forgiveness deals with the wounds and acts that have really hurt us or have hurt someone else. It cuts to the heart. And then we can't forgive. Um, we can't, the, the, the issue for most of us is, is forgiveness. And the deal is, is you cannot forgive unless you see that you're someone that is in need of forgiveness. You can't hold a grudge against someone unless you think subconsciously or consciously it's something you would never do, right? You can't. If you're, if you're thinking you have a, a, a superiority or it's something you would never do, you can't forgive. But when you, as a Christians, we first and foremost come and say, we are all people in need of forgiveness. So first of all, we must acknowledge that we are constantly in need of forgiveness. And the definition of forgiveness is this. It's an intentional, there's a lot of definitions. This one's probably the most simple. It's an intentional act of releasing our malice towards the wrongdoer. It's the intentional act of releasing our malice towards the wrongdoer, no longer wishing bad upon the other person. Um, for me, um, sometimes one thing I do is I just, whenever I see the river, it's like a, it's like a cue for me to forgive. Um, whenever I see the Chicago River, I, I stand, I stare at the river, and I visualize the person that I need to forgive, and I just say, I release you. I release you of all your wrong. I release you of malice. This is an ongoing practice. You don't just forgive someone once and then it's over usually. It's, forgiveness is, an, is some of the most impossible thing to do. It's the hardest thing for us to do. So how do you know you're doing it right? You're growing in your forgiveness when you can stop doing three things. You can stop repeating the wrong in your heart. You can stop bringing the wrong up to them. And you can stop bringing the wrong up to other people. Bless you. Forgiveness is critical for us as a Jesus follower. And it's going to take many steps for us to release, release, release. But the damage of not forgiving is on us. (laughs) The person that it hurts is us. But the triune God designed us and knows that when there's a heart of unforgiveness, it destroys us. 
But forgiveness liberates and heals our wounded soul. It allows us to step out of the past, step into the future that God's designed us to be. And it, it, it's, it, it, and there's a horrible theology that like, hey, just forgive and forget. Have you ever heard that? Forgive and forget, that's horrible. Like, no, you never forget the wrong. It's, it's not that you're supposed to forget the wrong. the wrong. You're forgiving because there was actual or real wrong done to you. You can remember the wrong and forgive, and you can forgive without ever having a reconciling conversation. You don't have to have a conversation to forgive. Forgiveness can be done without, the person could pass away. You could have parents that pass away that you forgive. You move away from a different city and someone, a friend that wrongs you, you can forgive who you'll never see again. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there has to be reconciliation. It's a process of acts you can take without any reciprocation of the person you're forgiving to release that person. So the deal is, is our, this, this is why it's so important. Our conflict is not just for you and I to get better. It's for the future generation. It's for the future generations that we are raising. It's for the kids that we are seeing. It's for the people in our lives. And some of you are looking at this and like, this is overwhelming. I get it. These tools are overwhelming. And then here's the good news. just want to give you some good news after all those tools. There's people who can do these tools perfectly and constantly have horrible relationships. And there's people who can never do these tools well but repair relationships. Why? Because it is a heart issue. It is a heart issue that we must forgive. And someone I know, you may be feeling alone. Brian, you don't know my past. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how horrible this was. I don't, but I know there's someone in the scriptures named Jacob. We read about the beginning, who all his life he inherited dysfunction. His great-granddad was Abraham. His, his dad was, or sorry, his granddad was Abraham. His dad was Isaac. And he inherited a dysfunctional family. Some of you, your dysfunction predates you. It predates you and it carries with you in your bones. And he, his name means Jacob, which was deceiver. He was a trickster. He manipulated and maneuvered his entire life to get what he wanted to the point to where his brother sought out to kill him. And Jacob realized, you know what? This issue, this conflict, it feels very outer, but God wrestles with him in the middle of the night. And, says, and he says, God, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And God says, what's your name? And he says, Jacob, this is who you've got. I confess my true nature. I'm the trickster, I'm the deceiver. And God says, but no longer will your name be Jacob, but it will be Israel. Because you used to wrestle with God. You think this was an outer thing, but you're really wrestling with, you used to wrestle with man, but you're really wrestling with God. This is an inner thing. So for a lot of us, a lot of our outer conflicts, it's about an inner conflict that we must work out with God. That we must wrestle with God until we hear those words, but no longer. But no longer will your name be nominal, but it will be notable. But no longer will you be filled with worry, it will be filled with wonder. But no longer will you be broken, you will be beloved. We need a new identity, people. That we can have this new identity. No longer you have to wrestle and struggle and strive, but you can put on the identity of a peacemaker. That's my hope for us today, that we shift in our hearts a peacemaker identity. That we are men and women of peace, and that when we do conflict, it is so that we can have the peace of God and his mission and his goals go forth. Not for us but for the future. And when Jacob wrestled with God, he left with a limp. And many of us want the blessing, but we don't want the limp. But when you've been transformed, there's a limp and scars to show for it. So for God, God wants us today for us to enter into a season, a 
place of forgiveness this morning. So I want to ask you, who do you need to release? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to address the difficult conversation with? Trust in God that even if it doesn't go well, you're not running, you're wrestling with God to say, I will bring my whole self to be a peacemaker. I will be a peacemaker because my heart has changed. It is transformed. I have a new identity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Band, you guys can come up. As we, the band gets ready to sing and sing, and as we pray and enter into a time of communion, some of you have done conflict, some of it's gone well, some of it hasn't. I just want us to give us a time of ministering to one another right now. We're going to have prayer leaders up here if you want prayer. If you know God has named something in your life that you, he's, some of you, you feel like he's, (laughs) here's the deal. We've talked a lot about the ways that it goes wrong. God doesn't want to just name your circumstance. He wants to give you a new name. He wants to give you a new name. Some of you think God just wants to put a name on my bad circumstance. No, he wants to give you a new name today of peacemaker, of blessed, of beautiful, of redeemed, of wonder. What is the new name you need to receive? What's the new identity you need to step into? If you would close your eyes and bow your heads as we pray. God, would you give us your new name? For some of us, God has to meet us just like Jacob, according to our personality. So I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you to step in, to lean into this to make a mark today that you are going to be a peacemaker in your life, that you are going to have an identity of peace. You're going to release someone today. Release your malice of the wrongdoer. Start the process today. Where do you need a changed heart? Is it a parent? For some of you, you need to release a spouse today. Some of you need to release a family member today. We are in a culture desperate for forgiveness. The famous story, I think it was told by Ernest Hemingway, that in the middle of Guadalajara, Mexico, a dad left a note at a grocery store and said, Paco, all is forgiven. Love, Papa. Meet me here tomorrow, 8 a.m. And the next day, 100 Pacos showed up <laughs> looking for their father, wanting that forgiveness. God, would you give us the power and the strength to release today? We need your power from on high, for it can come from nowhere but you. If you are here and you do not know Jesus, I invite you 
to know that this road of reconciliation is possible only through Jesus. He is the one who can give you the power to do this. If you have never invited him to be the Lord of your life, we encourage you today to make that be known. Grab me, someone here, and say, I want to step into a relationship. God, would you have your way as we come forward for communion after this song? Press into others that are praying for us. There's prayer leaders up front that will be here. Come be encouraged to receive a new name. You have a new name. You are God's idea. Some of you don't believe that because you were always told, oh, I was just the second, third child. That was an accident. No, you are God's idea this morning. Somebody needs to hear that. Would you stand in worship? And um, we're going to have some people available for prayer. If God's speaking to you to step out in faith, just to receive prayer for what you're going through, you don't have to say anything, but we just want to pray for you. Pray God's blessings upon you. Pray his new name upon you. Pray for reconciliation and release. Come receive.